a.m. in New York, 9 a.m. in Johannesburg, and 2 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to the Expat Happy Hour. This is Sunday Schneider Bean from sundaybean.com, and I'm a solution-oriented coach and intercultural strategist for individuals and organizations. And I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed when living abroad and get you through any life transition. You have 237 unread emails in your inbox. Your to-do list is undefeatable. You have so much to do, you start dreaming about tidal waves. Oh, wait, sorry. I was talking about me, not you. (laughs) But I know I'm not alone. So many of my clients have big goals and big responsibilities, but are frustrated because they never feel like they can get on top of things. And if you're living a globally mobile life, then throw in a big move every two to three years, or even when you least expect it. If anyone can help with this, I know it is our special guest this week. Graham Alcott, the author of How to Be a Productivity Ninja, Worry Less, Achieve More, and Love What You Do, is here with us. And what we're looking at is how do we take back control of our life so we can enjoy more of what's on our list. And I'm a huge fan of Graham's work so much that I recommend it to my clients and I've even tweeted about it. And when he responded, I kind of fangirled. And yes, I am that nerdy about productivity. And here is why Graham Alcott is the perfect person to join us today. He is an entrepreneur. He does keynote speaking around the world. And he is the founder of Think Productive. Not only that, he's also the host of a popular business cast called Beyond Busy and the author of many, many, many other books. And so I can't think of anybody better than someone who practices what he preaches to join us today. All right, Graham, welcome to Expat Happy Hour. Good to be here. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. And I know that my audience um, is ready for a huge dose (laughs) of wisdom when it comes to productivity. But before we get into some of the tips and tricks, I kind of want to know, how did you become a productivity ninja yourself? (laughs) So my book is How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So I kind of describe myself as a productivity ninja. Um, How it started for me was realizing that I wasn't very good at productivity uh, about 15 or so years ago. And I had at quite a young age got into a leadership role in a charity. So I was chief executive of this charity that was small but national, uh, going in and having breakfast meetings with government ministers and all kinds of stuff. It was um, it was pretty crazy. And I was 26. So what mm-hmm. I missed out on was the middle management years of really learning how to get a lot of stuff done and a lot of stuff over the line in an efficient way. And I could sit at my desk and have ideas and then a team of people would pick stuff up and do stuff and it was it was all great. But then when I left that job, I went freelance. And so I was on my own, working solo. And one day I sat at my desk and I um, wrote some ideas down. And I turned around to see who was going to help me make everything happen. And I realized it was just me. And I was in the spare bedroom of my house. 
<laughs> and uh, I had a problem. And that problem really is that my natural style is not someone who's particularly organized or um, I'm not really a complete finisher in a kind of natural sense. Mm -hmm. um, I'm much more of a strategic big, pink, big picture thinker than I am a detail person. And really what happened was I solved productivity for me and got good mm -hmm. at it. And then people started saying to me, how come you never used to reply to your emails and now you do? And mm. so I said, okay, I'll run a lunch and learn and tell you how. And uh, that turned into a business called Think Productive, which now has um, four offices around the world in, um, in Sydney, uh, just outside Toronto for North America, uh, in the Netherlands for Western Europe and here in the UK, uh, based in Brighton on the South Coast, which is where I am right That's now. Amazing. Um, and then from there, I, I developed the book. So Productivity Ninja is kind of my, my best known book. Um, I have one called Study Ninja, which takes that on to uh, sort of help people who are in kind of 16 plus education, something around there. Uh, and then I recently released one with a co-author, Colette Hennigan, uh, called Work Fuel, which is basically how to eat to have the best uh, possible energy for getting stuff done. Um, so that's really been the journey that um, Think Productive was 2009 we launched. Um, so we've been going just over 10 years, had our 10 year anniversary birthday this year. And wow, um, now I am much more productive. But what's really important about a Productivity Ninja, I'll say this right at the start, is um, a Productivity Ninja is a human and not a superhero. So you have mm -hmm. good tools and good habits and good skills, but there are no special powers. And mm -hmm. because you're human, it means you'll screw it up sometimes. So I'm not perfect at it now, but I'm much, much better than I was. And um, really, that's been the sort of journey is sharing that, sh sharing my own struggle with others, because I think it's really useful to learn stuff from someone who struggled to learn it themselves rather than learning stuff from somebody who it comes really naturally to. I think it's much I easier. Have exact, yeah. Yeah. It's much easier philosophy. to teach Learn stuff, by failure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Learn by failure. It's my method. Yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's much easier to teach stuff where you can really identify with the struggles yeah. and really identify mm -hmm. with, the, you know, getting something to come naturally to you that didn't come naturally to you before um, is, you know, that's a struggle. So once you start to see that struggle for people who are very naturally organized, when they try and coach productivity, it's like, well, just do it like this. And they right. don't no. get that there's the, all these kind of resistances and, um, you know, human baggage and biases that uh, we mm -hmm. bring to the table with all this stuff. I kind of want to punch those people in the face. <laughs> well, they have a place. No. They should just be teaching something else. <laughs> no, I just, I don't want to punch you in the face if you're really organized. I just mean, I'm jealous that you have that. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. um, so one of the, it's so funny you say that about being, they're human um, and not a superhero. Cause I wrote in my notes, I wanted to share with you is that your book is so human. I oh, really appreciate that because what, one of the things, you know, I think back in the day, everybody read Stephen Covey and I love, I love that classic, right? Where we're, we're thinking, okay, time management and all of that. And when I picked up Productivity Ninja, I'm like, finally somebody who gets my life <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, I have my, as I was saying before we started recording, my business is hundred percent location independent. Um, I do training and coaching, but half of the time I'm on social media and I'm doing a ton of marketing and sales and connecting, and that is all in real time. So yeah. I can't predict what's going to happen, and I need to be responsive. And this book, what I love about it is that you have offered what I think is the best book on reflecting strategies for our reality now 
accepting that social media is part of our lives or even part or central to our business? And then how do I work with For that? Sure. Yeah, and not just social media, right? So, you know, instant messaging tools, Slack, email, mm-hmm. there, are, there are so many other things that are uh, tugging on our attention. Totally. And so I think what I tried to do with the book is, I, you know, because I, I read Stephen Covey too, and I read uh, David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, which was a big influence, and lo- lots of other books. But, you know, for me, what all of those books um, lacked was, well, I think all of them had, all of them kind of come from this uh standpoint of I'm the guru and mm-hmm. I get it right 100% of the time and you just you should just be a bit more like me mm-hmm. which just felt completely completely alienating yeah. um, but I think the other thing that they really lacked was yeah like you say that that acknowledgement that we do live in a 24-7 always on culture and uh, so therefore um, you know when you start from not recognizing that what you're what you're really assuming is that people have of their attention available to themselves at all times. Mm -hmm. And it's just about how they allocate it. And what I'm saying is your attention is always going to be grabbed by something else. Mm -hmm. And therefore you have to proactively make the space for the stuff that matters. Mm -hmm. And so you have to carve out those periods of time to do what Cal Newport calls the deep work, right? So, you know, getting down and really doing the deep thinking and the creation and the problem solving and all that sort of stuff that is much deeper than the kind of surface level noise of email and social media. But you have to do that proactively. I mean, if, if you just, um, you know, start the day thinking, okay, I've got my to-do list here and I'm going to crank open my email and have a look at social media, the day will be well gone before you get through that to-do list. So it's, you know, it's really about how you carve out and get savvy around carving out the, the time and the space for using your best attention in the most wise possible and way. And I know that the majority of my audience believes that they, they wake up every morning with this delusion Today, I'm going to get through my to-do list, right? Mm. And then when you don't, you feel like a failure. Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, I have the work that I do. I help people really create more purpose and meaning in their lives. And that might be starting a business. It might be refocusing on family or doing something in their community, right? So there's something they really believe in. And they're starting. It's almost like a place of inertia, And there's this whole big thing they want to do. And when they start looking at all their multiple priorities and all of the obligations with family, et cetera, et cetera, I watch them initially get into paralysis. So what what do you think when you look at all the people that you've worked with one-to-one or in large groups, what do you think is honestly the biggest barrier that people face to really being productive? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, we mentioned before the barriers around just the, the general circumstances that most people find themselves in. If, if you're not a kind of solo um, location independent worker, you're probably in an open plan office, which is probably even worse mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. in terms of distractions and interruptions and all that stuff. But I think, you know, just some very simple, um, like regular rhythmical habits are the biggest barriers so once you start to um, enact certain habits um, then your your brain just thinks in a different way mm-hmm. um, so a couple of those really quickly I talk about in the book um, uh, there's four chapters in the book actually capture and collect organize review and do mm-hmm. and so capture and collect is, is about getting all the stuff that you are working on out of your head and either onto paper or into some kind of app or some kind of place where you can start to just dump it all there 
and free up your own mind to be able to do quality thinking. I'm giggling because I have about 14 post-it notes on my desk right now because of your capture thing. (laughs) This is from... Well, so you've captured and collected it, right? And then what you need to do next is um, convert them from post-it notes into something that's more organized, Right. right? So putting those into the projects and the actions that that relates to or making a note of the people that you need to chase up in a week's time because you're waiting on them to do something, putting stuff into your calendar. So really organize is, you know, it's about asking yourself some really simple questions about each and every one of those things. And they're the kind of questions that we ask ourselves very naturally, but yet we don't necessarily do it kind of rhythmically, habitually and, and, and sort of more fully than that. So, you know, really there's, there's, there's like a diagram in the book that, that goes through, um, you know, sort of various questions around that. But really the, the end point is to aim to have a really comprehensive projects list. So all the things that you're working on, make a note of those and, 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 and sort of list them as things that you're explicitly committed to. And then for each of those things that you're working on, those bigger picture things, have at least one what I call next physical action. So you need to be able to close your eyes and picture yourself doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, chase up Brian is not a next physical action. Call Brian on this number is a next physical mm-hmm. action, right? So the difference between that language, um, you know, is is really vital because then when you're even at the most tired points in your day or in your week, you can look at your to-do list and say, I've got a phone and I know this number and I can <laughs> punch it in and, and call Brian, right? Yeah. So you're trying to make it as easy as possible for your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be able to look at those things. What most people's to-do lists look like is a mixture of projects, of the nagging thoughts of people. Um, so, you know, so what I mean by that is, um, oh, I need to get that thing back to Martha. So you just write Martha. Mm-hmm. Or it's my dad's birthday coming up. So you just write dad, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or it's like some huge big project like I've got to clear out the garage or I've got to you know um, organize a conference whatever so you see people just write conference on their to-do list and it's like well no wonder when your brain looks down that list there's absolutely no chance of you making that conference mm-hmm. happen because it will just go conference huh, horrible move right, to the next one the- you know our brains are lazy in the way they think so you've got to really proactively get into this way of of defining the next physical actions with everything do the thinking first and do you know what the more you think the easier your work becomes. Which I think people don't re- realize, right? It's kind of like if you run regularly, the easier it is to run. It, um, mm, I don't think people, yeah. this is called, yeah. so if, for those of you who are are reading the book or are going to get the book, he's talking about the cord method, capture and collect, organize, review and do. And this is really cool because you talk about the difference between boss mode and worker mode. Can you tell the audience just quickly yeah. what the difference is? Because this made a big difference for me. Yeah. So if you think about the kind of job that you do now, um, you're most of the people listening to this, the vast majority of people listening to this, you're knowledge workers. And that means you add value and create value out of information. And so actually the, the, the most important skill in your work is quality thinking. Um, we weren't always knowledge workers. So back in the industrial age economy, you might have had some kind of job where it's like you go into the cake factory and you've got a big box of cherries and you put one cherry on each cake and it's just like a function that you're performing. But for most people in knowledge work, you are simultaneously the boss and the worker. So all of you have to put cherries on cakes. You don't do that literally, of course, but you send the emails, you set up the meetings, you send off the proposals, you complete the stuff, whatever. Those are all the cherries on the cakes that you have to do as part of whatever your job is 
But it's like, imagine if you're putting cherries on cakes, but also at the same time, someone's coming in, into your ear in the factory and tapping you on the shoulder and saying, what time should the shift start tomorrow? And how fast should the conveyor belt go? And let's think about what's going on in the outside world, which is everyone's talking about healthy eating. So should we just, just ditch the cakes completely and we'll use the cherries and make fruit cocktails instead, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, we have this... Um, problem in knowledge work which is that we're simultaneously the boss and the worker my my um, experience with coaching people is most people spend more time in worker mm -hmm. mode and not enough time in yes. the boss mode and it's about how you get the balance right and so what that means is if you're spending more time in the worker mode and not enough time in the boss mode aka not enough time just doing quality thinking and decision making and defining the work then what happens is you end up being really reactive, you end up being really busy and you're not necessarily seeing the bigger picture enough or working in the most efficient way. So you can work really frenetically, but not necessarily as efficiently as you could or with as much impact. This as you has could. been such a and then the opposite of that. I was just sorry, saying this on. has been such a big shift in my business because I um mm. you know I work directly with people. I love what I do, and so it's really easy to do. I'm like a maker in my shop you know, podcast, yeah. coaching, training, yeah. developing stuff. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, where's the strategic direction? Like I've been so busy in my Absolutely. shop. I didn't put my head above and look longer term. And that's where I think when you mention boss mode versus worker mode, people want to feel successful. So they go and do the easy thing to work. Right. But they don't step yeah. back. And it yeah, and it's that difference between being really efficient with the stuff that's in front of you um, and being really effective with the stuff you should have been doing, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, I said, and, and the opposite way around, you know, is equally as bad, which is if you spend all your time just thinking about the work, but you don't put any cherries on cakes mm -hmm. and nothing gets done, that's no good either. So it is about getting that balance and, you know, importantly recognizing that, you know, like to my mind, you can't really do both at the same time. Multitasking is a mm -hmm. myth. And so at the start of the day, really spend some time at the start of the day or the start of the week working out which are the times in my week when I'm going to be in the mm -hmm. thinking mode and planning the work and defining the work. And my experience, as I say, is that most people don't do that. Just, you know, they, they, they might just not be doing that enough and usually a little bit more time, not much, but a little bit more time in that thinking mode, in the boss mode will really help. Um, you know, so working out the, the times in your day and in your week when you're going to be in that thinking mode and then the times when you're just going to say, I'm in delivery mode and I'm going to be heads down and I'm going to try and screen out some of those distractions like social media. And then the times when you're in a more collaborative mode and you're able to, uh, you know, to be, be doing work, but also just reacting to the stuff around you. That's important, too. So, you know, I kind of see it as, um, you know, really important to kind of set almost like the mental environment that you want for yourself um, and the kind of the kind of mode that you're in. Um, is to me as important as selecting the tasks mm -hmm. that you're going to do. You said something to me that kind of took me off guard and I started to question whether I was organizing my time well. And you talked about don't plan tasks in your calendar in advance, just do mm. it for the day. And then I went into yeah. panic mode because, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh -huh. I have a lot of projects, right? And I have clients that I onboard. And then some of those hours are fixed for my clients. And I I am really sure. good at overcommitting. <laughs> So it's like I feel safety in my calendar when I block out all the regular things that I do um, in advance yeah. so that I know how much time I have. Um, so tell me more about that strategy. Why should we be careful about planning tasks in advance? 
Well, you know, here's the thing. You 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 started the conversation saying to me that you don't you can't predict mm-hmm. when something pops up on social media or an email that you need to react mm-hmm. to, right? And so that's just like a a fundamental part of of particularly doing client work and you know, like at, at times we need to be in that reactive mode or we certainly need to make sure that we're just checking in with those things as often as is kind of necessary. So I think, you know, once you start to to plan everything as kind of plumbed into the diary, what you do is you make it mm-hmm. less flexible and you often, when you do that, just don't acknowledge the other work that goes on around it. So reacting and seeing stuff, you know, most people I, in my experience who follow that sort of strategy of, of planning out really carefully, meticulously in the diary, everything they're going to do over the next week, you'll find nothing in their diary that says emails, <laughs> right? Or nothing in their diary that says lunch uh, hey, 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 I added those um, into my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> those are there. So I just think it's yeah. inherently less flexible, right. right? And so it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about, you know, the Stephen Covey Seven mm-hmm. Habits book and, and even David Allen, you know, it kind of starts from this kind of premise of we have all the time available to us. And so we can kind of start from there. Whereas, you know, really we need to be more agile and more flexible and kind of, you know, uh, pick stuff up as 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 the kind of mood and the whim takes us and as the world changes around us, rather than being so committed. I think the same is true with project planning on a kind of bigger scale. So, it, you know, by all means, with every project, have a really good sense of the key mm-hmm. milestones, right? So like the key points that, I, you know, if, if it's a conference, it's like, I need to get the invites out by this time. We have to have the venue booked, obviously, before that. And then we need the speakers all confirmed by this date. And then we print on the program on this date, whatever the thing might be have those key milestones, but all the other stuff around that, the best way to plan those kind of projects is on a weekly basis, not having some hugely detailed project plan at the beginning, because most projects don't run exactly as you expect them to. And, you know, so you can spend an awful lot of time planning and then rehashing plans. And that's really old school. I mean, I did project management in Switzerland and it's really old school, like detailed Excel sheets. Um, It's incredible how much time they spend planning and it doesn't work like that. And great, you know, if you're doing, if you're running that project on a desert <laughs> island, that would work really well. But it was almost like when I did pro- a project management course, um, it was almost like in the train, you know, the training, the trainer said, this probably won't go as you plan. And I just thought, mm. well, then why are we spending so much time with such fancy Excel sheets with so many fancy yeah. colors if this is yeah. not right? Expensive software. So this is interesting. You, t- you talked about this, you know, the cord model, um, and it's definitely integrated in the modes. Are we thinking boss mode, worker mode? You've talked about attention. I love in your book, how you, you give people guidelines on what you should be doing based on your level at- of attention. And what I, what I love mm, about that yeah. is you give people permission to be organic material and not a machine, right? I always talk about my clients are yes. high performers. They put, yep. They expect themselves to perform like a race car, change the tires, boom, go. Mm. And it's not like that. We're organic. We get tired. We have moods, our attention shifts. And when we, when we pack our schedule, like we're a race car, we're, we're headed for burnout. The race car is the superhero, right? Human, human, not superhero. Um, and so really what I'm talking about with attention management, because by the way, you know, a lot of people still talk about time management. Um, and I just think time management is, Mm -hmm. is nonsense. Really what we're talking about is attention management. How, how do we manage and protect our attention to do its best work? I talk about this three types of attention. So you have 
proactive attention. Those are the two to three hours in the day where you have the best energy, you're most switched on. And generally, people will have that at similar times during the day. But even within within a week, there might, it might be an hour's difference. You know, for me, it's like it's always kind of eight till 11 or midday, something like that, are kind of like my really core hours that I know I'll have great attention during that time. But, you know, like some days I, d- I just wake up a little bit grumpy or uh, I wake up really fully switched on and um, raring to go. And it's kind of slightly different every day. But getting that real sense of when in the day you have your best attention um, is really key. And then obviously the next step, once you've got that awareness and you know when that is in your day, is to protect that attention mm-hmm. as ruthlessly as you can. So, you know, um, if if it helps have time during that time where you don't have your emails turned on, if, you, if that's something that you can do, um, you know, don't be on social media during that time. Uh, don't be sat in someone else's boring meeting or on someone else's boring Zoom mm-hmm. call or something during that time. Like spend that time as... Um, as wisely as you can on the stuff that is your biggest priority and the stuff that's maybe the hardest, the stuff that involves the most thinking. Uh, so that's proactive attention. And then the other end of the scale is you have inactive attention. So that's the time where you're sat at your desk and it's maybe four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon and you're scrolling up and down your email inbox and it's like the lights <laughs> are on, but no one's home. This was you me know, like 20 minutes ago, if I'm really um, honest. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, so here's the thing is like, we, we all have those times in our, in our day and in our week because we are human, mm-hmm. not superhero. And, you know, the worst thing you can do um, when you're in that kind of a, a, a sort of um, attention mode is to try and give yourself really difficult work to do because mm-hmm. you won't do it. And then you just feel really bad that you've wasted that time. So to be kinder to yourself in those periods, which means find and store up the easiest possible stuff you can do. For me, that's kind of a lot of my emails get done in my kind of mm-hmm. inactive attention time. Uh, if I've got filing to do, if I've got online purchases to do, um, you know, expense receipts to uh, take photos of and put onto my Zero app, all those kind of little things. I store those things up and I, I purpose, purposefully try and do them when I don't have my best attention and then, you know, and, and, and then I'm doing something mm-hmm. of some value. Right. Whereas then the flip side of that is when I know I've got proactive attention, I'll try as much as possible. If I, if I find a receipt on my, um, you know, in my wallet or on my kind of kitchen top or whatever, and it's like, Oh, that's a receipt I need to put into zero. I'll purposefully usually say, right, let me just chuck that in the in tray mm-hmm. and I'll come back to it, you know, and try and try and avoid getting sucked into even small tasks um, that you could do with lesser, and, lesser and levels book, of you, I think you talk about how, how expensive that is. For example, if I change the printer cartridge during, you know, during my yeah. best attention, that's an expensive transaction. You right? can do that anytime, right? You can do yeah. that half in your sleep. And, you know, then you can take that thinking to um, the sort of next level if you have a team around you. So then you get into a whole thing of what do I need my best mm-hmm. attention for? What's the stuff that really needs to be me or it's just easier or more efficient to be me? And what I, I suppose what I mean by that is stuff where it'd be quicker for me to just do it than it, than mm-hmm. it would be to delegate it. And then the next level is like, what do I just need someone else's good attention to do? They don't need to necessarily know all of my preferences on this particular thing, but like they can go and find out and research the thing or they can data entry this stuff or they can number crunch this or whatever. Um, so that, you know, you can almost think about that as like the next level after managing your own attention is, you know, really looking at what somebody else's attention could be put to, um, you know, within your, within your team versus, you know, what are you, what are your strengths? I think this is really particularly important for entrepreneurs who 
there are so many th- times I'm so sick of thinking, like I'm so, I have to be so creative all the time, like creating a new podcast, creating the content, creating, creating, creating. And sometimes I'm like, can someone else just please think for me? Right. Mm. So, you know, make a suggestion <laughs> on what we could do for ABC. And I like that idea in the team. Though I, did yeah. I miss one? We said your best attention, inactive attention, but I think there's one more. Yeah. Well, the middle one is just active attention. So you can do most of the stuff on your to-do list, but you can't necessarily Mm -hmm. do the best stuff or the most difficult stuff. Um, So that's Mm -hmm. just like the bit in the middle. But I kind of look at it as like two to three hours of proactive attention a day. There's probably an hour or two of the inactive attention, usually at the very end of the day, sometimes at the very beginning of the day, if if you're a (laughs) coffee fiend and you've not had your caffeine. Um, You know, usually a little kind of period after, after lunch, there's usually a little slump there. So, you know, one of the things that you can do if you're listening to this and kind of curious is just just map out um, your kind of instinct for where that might look like on a kind of weekly timetable. Um, and my hunch for most people is that you have, again, a slightly greater level of proactive attention on the earlier days of the week if you're kind of working on a, a standard kind of Monday to Friday uh, time period. Thursday and Friday will tend to have a little bit more uh, active attention and, and and a bit more inactive attention and a bit less of the really good stuff. Because um, just we, you know, we work on a law of diminishing returns. There's a really good study, um, uh, the, the, the sort of founding study around the industrial age productivity uh, came from mm-hmm. Henry Ford, right? So he really kind of set up the kind of Monday to Friday, nine to five working week. And not because he was a lovely guy and wanted to believe that everyone needed two days of leisure out of seven, but just because he realized that if you work people mm. seven days a week, they burn out. And if you work them five days a week, they mm. come back refreshed on a Monday morning. So, you know, he, there was a big study called Ford on Productivity. And the, the main kind of point of that was to say, where is that law of diminishing returns, where actually it's more efficient for us to pay somebody else than it would be to keep paying this person mm. when they're really tired. And it kind of, uh, it sort of tops out around 40 hours a week, 40, 37 and a half, something like that. And there was a follow-up study where they did forward on productivity in knowledge work. And it was looking at where's the law of diminishing returns where, where basically you work with your mm-hmm. brain rather than with your hands. And what that report found was that the law of diminishing returns kicks hours. in at about 30 hours. So if you're getting to you know Wednesday, Thursday in the week and you've had a, a busy run of it and you're feeling really tired, don't beat yourself up about that. You are actually just totally within the, the realms of normal there. You know, um, think productive. My company works a four-day week, so we work Monday to Thursday as a general rule. Um, and the reason for that is that we send people home for a three-day weekend. They come back like re- really much more fully refreshed. Totally. On that's a, what I mean by we are organic material and not race cars. And it, what, that's what I love about yeah. your book. There's so much permission to be human, and that's what I find a lot with my clients. They beat themselves up because they want to be more productive, and then they don't crush their list like they want to, and then they feel bad. Um, so. Yeah. If someone is getting started, I mean, I would absolutely recommend the, reading the book. As I've been listening to you, I, I was actually, I was going to sort of shame myself for not being as good of a productivity ninja as I could be. But when I actually thought about it, I do organize my time with the attention. I do block out, you know, some of the core things that you mentioned um, that I, I know there's room, you know, to optimize. So of course, I would recommend yeah. um, that they get your book. What should they do after? Should they should they block off time and do as they read, or they should should they read first and then block off time to follow the steps? Um, that's a really good question. Do you know what? I quite often get 
tagged in Instagram posts and stuff where people are reading my book on the beach and it always kind of fills me with a little <laughs> bit of dread because I just think is someone really spending their holiday yeah. reading yes, Productivity yeah. Ninja right like I saw because and, and partly that's my own narrative around that which is I can tell when I'm truly relaxed on a holiday when I switch from business or non-fiction books into fiction books and usually that mm. takes me about six days mm. <laughs> so it's like I kind of I kind of feel guilty for infecting someone else's holiday with more work stuff and more work things. I am going to defend, I'm defending everybody on Um, the beach reading Productivity Ninja because, (laughs) no, I'm going to say something that's really embarrassing. Um, So I am the type of person who doesn't read fiction. I read nonfiction because I'm super nerdy and I love to learn, right? So, so, um, so when you, when I tweeted, I told my audience about this book and I think um, your company retweeted, or I don't know if it was you or someone from the company and I completely fangirled. I was like, yeah. <laughs> because I love oh. this stuff and I think it's really important. And if someone is on vacation in the beach and what they're doing is they're saying yes to themselves. They're saying yes to taking control of their life. They're saying yes to taking control of their calendar yeah. and their priorities. And if that's what happens on vacation before life gets crazy again, I'm going to celebrate. Well, if that's the time and space that really works the best, yeah. then like for sure do that, right? Um, I mean, no, but seriously, because I think um, that's a really important thing with all of this. It's why I was kind of struggling with that question, because for some people, it's going to be about diving in chapter by chapter mm-hmm. and doing it alongside work. And other people, it's going to be about devouring the whole thing and then figuring out what the three or four best things are for them to do. Because, you know, I mean, of course, my, my bias right. is to tell everyone to do all of it, but... There are really small things that you can do that make a difference. The other thing that happens a lot is people just read, they go straight yes. to the chapter called Ninja Email, which is basically yes. about how to get your inbox to zero. And then what they do is they, from there, have the momentum and excitement to start looking at how that kind of way of thinking can operate across their projects and actions mm-hmm. and their apps and everything else. So, you know, email is a really nice starting point because you just get that taste of, mm-hmm. oh, this is different and I don't feel so stressed and I've got more control and you know, just having that kind of um, experience can just start the momentum rolling and, and it kind of goes from there. And then I get sent, because uh, my email address is in the back of the book and it says, I'd love to hear your stories, um, email me. So I get sent loads of screenshots of other people's empty <laughs> inboxes and it fills up mine. That's kind of, that's kind of my life. <laughs> the irony, the irony. Okay. The irony. Uh, it was definitely someone else in the company, by the way. You, you okay. said about Twitter. It wasn't me retweeting. It was um, someone from the company because I've been taking a – pretty for about the last six months, I've taken mm. a complete break, break from Twitter. Um, so my social media now is Instagram. That's kind of like where I um, where I kind of hang out. Not very much, but I'm, but I'm there. But Twitter, I was just finding, was just taking up too much attention. I was yeah. trying to write a book at the same time. And for me, I just thought, let's make, this is one of the ninja characteristics is ruthlessness. And I thought, how can I just make one ruthless decision about this, which just cuts it out for a period of time? Um, so I may go back to Twitter, I may not. But do you know what? It was one of those ones that took me about two or three months to finally mm-hmm. pluck up the courage to say I'm leaving this platform. And so now if you go on my thing, like I've got a pinned tweet mm-hmm. on there that says I'm not here. Um, here's how to get hold of me or whatever. And I was really nervous about doing that. But then from about two days in, the craving to check Twitter mm-hmm. just left me. That's great. And I haven't missed it that's since. Great. Like I haven't missed it at all, like at all. And so that's, that's quite an interesting observation. So listen, there's something that I don't, I don't know if everybody picks up on this as much as I do, but there's something that I really noticed about your book that I connected with. 
And um, the funny part is it's like in the last page and a half. So I run an expat group called Expats on Purpose, and I am really committed to supporting Mm. people to live with more purpose and meaning. And at the end, you talk about how talk is cheap, action is what counts. And you say, um, because Mm. it's all possible, all of it, the limit isn't your skills or your time, it's your imagination. And then you go on to say, you really can change the world. And this is what I love about what you offer is you're basically saying between your productivity strategies, where you are now and how you can shift your productivity strategies is an impact you can make in your life, in your family, in your community. Right? It's way bigger than Absolutely. us. It is way bigger than us. And also it starts, but what's interesting is, yeah, it's way yeah. bigger than us. And also it starts with us. And that's what's really exciting about it. I had somebody actually last week, um, I was doing a talk and it was quite a funny one that it was um, for this big national charity. And I think what usually happens is when they do their big away days, it's generally their own staff doing the talks. So this guy came in thinking he was going to get something about productivity from one of their staff. And then he's like, oh, no way. It's actually the guy that wrote the book. Okay, cool. Because I think they'd done mm-hmm. a thing about my book before. Um, and he was like, oh, I wasn't really that up for this hour. And now I really am. And he said, I, I need to sort of um, just stop you and uh, talk to you for a minute. And he did. And he said that he had um, quite a deep depression. And the my book was the thing that had got him out of the depression. And it was like, honestly, one of the most emotional things I've ever heard, um, like just to do with my work. And he said, thank you, not only on my behalf, but on, on behalf of my wife and kid, because I'm just a different person now. And I was like, you know, I was I basically like just mm-hmm. hugged him and was like close to tears. Like, and for me, um, I what really drives me is you know, love, like, I love the fact that my work can really make a huge impact on people's work and on their life. And, you know, people can do amazing things. And I, I, I support a lot of people in organizations that are just doing mm-hmm. just incredible work around the world. But what's also really exciting about it is when you get those little stories and nuggets that like one person's individual life is better as a result of it. And um, that's what's really magical about it for me. And I think, you know, once people start to adopt these kind of uh, different habits and ways of thinking, it becomes infectious. Like it infects the people around them because everyone yeah. goes, oh, you've got your inbox to zero. Maybe I'll try that. You know, and for me, it starts off this little kind of um, ripple effect in in other people, too. And, you know, I, I just think there's so much I, like I walk into like an open plan office in London and what I see, mm-hmm. I can almost see the stress. Right. Like I can almost almost like visually see it like colors. And I don't know if that's just me because I've done this for so long or whether whether that's something that other people pick up on, but it's mm-hmm. just so, it just breaks my heart because it's so, like, right. it's just right. not necessary, right? Like we can work in a different way and we can work in a way that um, helps us to be kinder to ourselves and get more under control and be much more intentional in what we do. So that's really what I love about um, the work that I do. Um, and yeah, like I, that's for me, it's the whole spectrum. It starts with individuals making the changes that make them happier. And then it ripples out to their family and it ripples out to their organization and the work okay. they're doing. And that's then hopefully exactly it ripples out to doing. the world. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It is way bigger than just getting more work done. It's actually creating 
more life and joy and a sense of self-worth when you actually take action on the things that are most important to you and make time for the things that you value the most. So it's really awesome. So the book is How to Be a Productivity Ninja, Worry Less, Achieve More, and Love What You Do. Graham, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being with us here on Expat Happy Hour. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. I'm taking away so many things from the interview. But probably if I narrow it down, I focus first on accepting how human we are and creating processes that acknowledge this and giving us some space to be this so that we can do more of what we love and less of the things that are draining us. The other thing I'm taking away is that Without a process that acknowledges that humanness, we're going to set up ourselves for failure, right? How many times have you thought you're going to get on top of things and then two weeks later you slid back into your old patterns? But probably the thing that I am left with the most from this interview is When you are struggling to create a new routine, a new habit, a new process, whether it's this one or something else, keep in mind, what are you doing it for? You're not doing it to be more productive. You're doing it to have more joy, to do more of what you love, to love what you do more, to create more time for family to support that cause that means the most to you. That's what you're doing it for. And I hope that drives you as you look at your own practices and seeing how they do or do not serve you. You've been listening to Expat Happy Hour with Sunday Schneider Bean. Thank you for listening. I'll leave you with the words of Graham Alcott. Talk is cheap. Action is what counts. Damn. <laughs>